0: I bring a wonderful subject to you this afternoon, and that's the subject of baptism. Please open your Bibles to my favorite verse on baptism. Since you all know where that is, it should be easy to find. 1 Peter 3.21, a verse I didn't even know was in the Bible when I was baptized. A verse that most people don't know is in the Bible about baptism when they're baptized. I have actually read books. Apologetic books about baptism that don't even deal with 1 Peter three twenty one, which is beyond my imagination. Jordan, I'm addressing you, and I'm addressing everyone else here as well. Right. From this text and several that I want to bring to bear on it, First Peter chapter three verse twenty one, the like figure, whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The like figure, whereunto even baptism, doth also now save us, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That reading, I left out the part that's in parentheses because that's how you're supposed to read English. The part that's put in parentheses is extra material, that, if you don't understand that it's extra material, disrupts the grammatical flow of what's around it. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was two years ago, October 2010, when I did a PowerPoint study on a Wednesday evening called Baptism Babel, in which we looked at this verse in great detail, word by word, phrase by phrase, showing verse 20 being the other figure that's at stake, how the other versions that are available today have corrupted this verse three ways. The three points of doctrine in 1 Peter 3 are corrupted in the modern translations of the Bible. And this is the most definitive verse in the Bible about baptism. You can find me verses with the word baptize, and you can find me verses with the word water, but you're not going to find a verse like this verse that says so much in one statement about baptism. Let's notice the three things. Baptism is a figure. That means it is a symbolic ordinance that doesn't do things literally because it does them figuratively. It shows a picture of what Jesus Christ did for us. It doesn't save us. It only saves us figuratively because it tells us so. It says the like figure whereunto baptism saves us. Well, if a figure saves you, then it only saves you figuratively. Now the like figure, and the word also that is in the first clause of that verse, the like figure whereunto even baptism doth also, the like, the word like, and the word also means there's two figures at stake, and they're like each other. The first figure is in verse 20, and that's the ark. The ark saved Noah and his family literally from water, but the ark saved Noah and his family figuratively by the water by delivering them from that wicked generation and God's judgment upon them so that's a figure in verse 20 the ark in which Noah's eight-member family was saved by God's grace because Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord then there's another figure and that's in verse 21 that's baptism so we have two figures and they're like each other because it says the like figure. So go figure, how can anybody be confused about this verse? The like figure, whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. So baptism has to be a figure, and baptism is a figure like another figure. So that's established. Okay, we're going to come back in a moment. This may not be the wisest way to do it, but let's go to the next point. The next point is, Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. Baptism does not wash away sins, literally. Because it's just told us it was figurative, but now it's being very plain. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. When the Bible uses the words filth of the flesh, and we're in a context like this, where we're dealing with salvation, we know that it has to do with our sinful nature and all of our sins. The Bible does not put... Baptism does not put away our sins not the putting away of the filth of flesh we don't get rid of our sins by getting baptized though so much of the christian world says so so the second thing we want to learn is the design of baptism it is not to wash away our sins the first thing we learned was the mode of baptism in that it is a figure so it needs to show us a figure of something and it tells us what that figure is on the other side of the parenthesis The resurrection of Jesus Christ. How can we show a figure of the resurrection? By burying a person in water and raising them back up out of the water. So we have the, the mode of baptism is burial and resurrection from water. Because it's a figure of the burial and resurrection of Jesus. Then we have the design of baptism. It's not to put away sin. But it is the answer of a good conscience toward God which tells us the proper person for baptism. The proper person for baptism has a conscience, the conscience is active, and the conscience is good. It's satisfied, it's happy, it's content, it's rejoicing because its sins were put away and it wants to answer God for what God did for it by sending Jesus Christ to die for its sins. It's the answer of a good conscience toward God. Now, the New American Standard Bible or the New International Version or the English Standard Version or any of those perversions that you would like to pick from, they take this verse and say that baptism answers to the figure of the ark. And baptism itself is no longer a figure. And so they take away the mode And the figurative picture of baptism of being a burial and a resurrection. They say, inside the parentheses, baptism does not wash away the dirt of your body. Allowing for baptism to continue to wash away your sins. Because that's what they believe. Then they say, baptism is the request for a good conscience. Instead of the answer of a good conscience. Now wait a minute. In one verse... And this is one of the ones they haven't deleted from the Bible. This is not one of the 50 verses they've deleted out of the New Testament. This is not one of the verses where the 200 verses where they've taken a major portion of a verse and deleted it. This is a verse that they left intact. Except for three little changes. And the three little changes change all three points of doctrine in the verse. Baptism is no longer a figure. So we can do it any way we want. We can pour, we can sprinkle, we can rub, we can immerse. It's no longer a figure. It's just the application of water. It doesn't wash away the dirt of the body, but we can still believe it washes away sins. And it is the request for a good conscience. So we can take little Johnny, who's eight days old, and have him aspersed, immersed, Affused or rubbed with the form of a cross and a thumb on his forehead, because we're asking that he has a good conscience someday. It's the request for a good conscience. Is that unbelievable? This is why we're King James Baptist. Right, right. And you know why I praise God for being a King James Baptist because God got Baptist, the King James Bible, from a Baptist-hating king. Amen. That is good stuff. King James hated Baptists. He killed Baptists and he imprisoned Baptists. But God doesn't care. He still got us his word by the power of a king for a nation that had lots of Baptists in it. And we're thankful for that. The Baptists he killed are known by name, date, place, time, crime, and the ones he imprisoned. He knew that killing them wasn't very good for politics, so eventually during his reign he imprisoned them rather than kill them but I rejoice in God because I don't trust King James for my Bible. I don't trust the translators that King James brought together for my Bible. I trust the God that brought the Bible together for me. And I believe you do as well. The Old Testament was brought together by the scribes and Pharisees and lawyers of the Old Testament church. And we wouldn't want to say that all of them were exactly living the most virtuous lives either, but God used them for the Preservation of his scriptures. And I thank God for the preservation of this verse right here. When it says the like figure, that means there has to be two figures and they're like each other. Which means baptism has to be a figure. So there is some picture that baptism represents. And it tells us in the verse that it's a picture of resurrection. And only Baptists have a resurrection form of baptism. So there's the mode. And it doesn't put away the filth of the flesh. There is no saving efficacy in the waters of baptism. It's only a picture of how we were saved. It doesn't put away the filth of our flesh. And it is the answer of a good conscience toward God. And when you look at the men that are baptized in the New Testament, they have active consciences. Those consciences are good. Those consciences are excited. Those consciences are eager and rejoicing in the Lord. The Bible tells me that the eunuch came up out of the water and went on his way Rejoicing. rejoicing. That eunuch was sitting in that chariot, and it wasn't Philip that said, What do you think about getting baptized? The eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? The jailer, the Bible tells me the jailer, was baptized rejoicing with all his house. This is a man that had pulled a sword to kill himself a couple of hours earlier, if that And now he was rejoicing with all his house because he was a baptized believer. His conscience was good and it had answered the Lord. We have studied this morning the doctrine of God's holiness. And baptism is our is the picture that we show back to God, answering him, thanking him for opening up the way into heaven so that we can go meet the holy God and be in his presence by prayer now and in physical presence very, very soon. Jesus Christ did that for us and we show how He did it for us in the waters of baptism. Now it says that baptism is the answer of a good conscience. And I want to preach to you for a little while about the conscience that's involved in baptism. So let's first of all remind ourselves what the conscience is. So let's go to Romans chapter 2 and remind ourselves about this thing you have inside you that is able to talk to you, rebuke you, encourage you, comfort you, and so forth. Your conscience. It is called the candle of the Lord in Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 27 because it searches the inward parts of the belly. And when it uses the inward parts of the belly, that's synecdoche for all of your inner parts, not just the belly. It doesn't do a lower or an upper GI. It is searching your inner parts, your conscience, your soul, your spirit. Romans chapter 2 tells us about the Gentiles. For not the hearers of the... Verse 13, I'm sorry. Romans 2, 13. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law... That means Gentile nations didn't have the written scriptures because they were given only to the Jews. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law... These, having not the law, are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts, the meanwhile, accusing or else excusing one another. So this, these verses tell us that a conscience is so powerful, it is like an unwritten law to a person, because that conscience either... Accuses them of doing something wrong or excuses them that what they did was right and acceptable. So a conscience is an internal apparatus we have that searches our inner parts and whispers to us or yells to us at times or beats us and chases us at times that what we did was wrong. An example of it in work is found at at work is found in John chapter 8 the woman taken in adultery. You know the story well. Jesus Christ stoops over and writes on the ground and said, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. They brought this woman that they said was taken in the very act of adultery. They reminded him that Moses' law commanded them that she should be stoned. And they asked him, What do you think? Tempting him. They had no They had absolutely no ambition for righteousness. They did not love the law of God. They did not care about the righteousness of God nor this woman. All they wanted was to capture Jesus Christ by saying something contrary to either Rome or to the Jews religion and they would have used it against him. The Bible tells us that in verse six when it says, this they said tempting him that they might have to accuse him. This is no legitimate case of Jesus weighing in righteously on a situation. He just turns the tables on them and takes the upper hand as he always did with his enemies. So when they continued asking him, can you hear this crowd of men just bugging him about this matter? So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, he had been ignoring them as he should have. He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. Now the rest of it isn't important for us right now. What I wanted for you is that there's a conscience that Jesus said, If you don't have any sin, then throw a stone at her, because they had said she needs to be stoned. But their conscience convicted them, I have lots of sin. In the presence of Jesus Christ, your conscience works better than ordinary. That's why it worked better for Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. Why wasn't he worried about his speech before he had the vision? Because it's in the presence of God that shines a light upon all your imperfections. His, His glory and his holiness exposes all of your filthy defilement. And so these began to go out from the oldest with the most experienced consciences and the longest lives to have committed more sins. They began to file out until it was just Jesus and the woman. But here's the conscience. These consciences were accusing them that you are not without sin, so who do you think you are to throw the first stone at her? Does baptism involve the conscience? Yes, because we've read it in 1 Peter 3.21. But let's... Look at Acts chapter 8 and see if we can't see it hidden there in the verse. Acts chapter 8 and verse 37. We're thankful to be Baptists. We're not ashamed to be Baptists. We're ashamed of most Baptist denominations and we're ashamed of most Baptist churches because they've departed from the apostolic faith and they no longer earnestly contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. But we're thankful to be Baptists like John was a Baptist and Jesus was a Baptist. And these are things I've said to you many times before. And we know that Jesus was a Baptist because what do you call someone who's baptized by a Baptist preacher? A Baptist. A Baptist. Mary was a Baptist. Mary wasn't a Catholic. She never met a Pope. Mary had to be saved as much as anyone and she said so in Luke chapter 2. My heart rejoices in God my Savior, Mary said. She was a Baptist because she was baptized by a Baptist preacher. John the Baptist is what Jesus called him, and so we're thankful to be called Baptist. We understand what the Greeks know the word to mean, and that means to immerse, dip, submerge in water. If you wanted me to prove that to you, I'll prove it this simply. Greeks should know the Greek language better than Americans in Catholic or Catholic-like cemeteries who pretend to be learning the Greek language. If you want to watch a Greek baptism, go to a Google search box and type in Greek Orthodox Baptism. And you will find the people that own the Greek language explaining to you by their actions what they believe that the Greek word baptizo means. Because they're taking their little babies and dipping them three times underwater. Oh yes. Their little baptismal font's big enough to get a baby in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son in the name of the Holy Ghost, they know that the word means to dip, submerge, immerse. There's no question until you create a heresy and then try to defend it with the Bible. Men have invented heresies and then tried to defend them with the Bible, so they try to get rid of the ordinary, natural, basic meaning of the word baptizo and the word "baptism." Baptizo is just a transliterated word coming into English from that Greek word. But all we have to do is read through the Bible and we know what the mode is. But my subject isn't the mode this morning because I want to preach to you about the conscience of baptism. We know that the mode was immersion because both the baptizer and the baptized both would go down into the water. We know that the mode is immersion because in Romans 6 and Colossians 2, baptism is called a burial. And there's no burial by rubbing a little on the forehead, sprinkling or pouring. We know that John baptized in Anan near to Salem because there was much water there. In John 3.23, which tells us the mode was immersion. Why would he need much water there? Why did the eunuch say, see, here is water? And he didn't hold up his canteen. He pointed to an oasis in the middle of the desert. If he had been a Presbyterian, Episcopalian, Methodist, Lutheran, or Catholic, he would have just held up his canteen and said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Paul could have rubbed a little bit in his forehead. Baptism is immersion. It's only been immersion. It's always immersion. It's scripturally immersion. The Greeks know it to be immersion. And they still defend it as immersion. But that's not our subject. but for some reason I love immersion because it is the figure of Jesus Christ's resurrection. And because I, in the ordinary course of things, I'm going to be buried soon. But I know that Jesus Christ is coming back to resurrect me from the dead. And so I'm I'm telling the Lord, I believe that you were buried and rose again for me by me being buried and resurrected from water. I believe that you're going to Raise me from the dead even if my body is buried. And I'm going to bury my old man to walk in a new life. That is three pictures of burial and resurrection that you can only get in a Baptist baptism. There's no picture in sprinkling and rubbing on the forehead in the form of a cross. What paganism. They got that from the Hindus. Why do you think they do the forehead? Anybody Anybody want to wager a guess as to why they put ashes on their forehead during Lent? That's the center of their de- demonic powers from the Hindu religion. Remember? What do Hindus have there? Oh, yeah. Just go look it up. Just go read a little bit about it. But don't read very much because it's not profitable for your soul. Right. If you want to read the stuff that I've already called out about it, go look for the picture of the Catholic with ashes on the forehead on our website and see what it has to say explaining about that. It's amazing what happens when you make one false assumption about baptism. Right. That it saves. That's where it all started. We're talking about the conscience, though, so I've got to return to our subject. Acts 8, 37. Let's get verse 36. And as they went on their way, bouncing along in their chariot, Acts eight thirty six. they came unto a certain water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? I just, I just love this exchange. You should love it. Amen. Rejoice with me. And Philip said, if thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. Now, if you're believing something with all your heart, is your conscience unengaged, partially engaged, or fully engaged? If you're believing with all your heart, your heart, your conscience is fully engaged. So though the word conscience is not in the verse, we know the conscience is involved because if the conscience was accusing you, you wouldn't be believing with all your heart you would only be believing with part of your heart because the other part of your heart would be under the sway of your conscience telling you that what you're doing was not right. So it's implied there and it's understood. And he answered, the eunuch answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now how do they get this second occurrence of of conscience out of the Bible? This, if thou believest with all thine heart since 95% of those that call themselves Christians baptized by aspersion, effusion, or rubbing, how do they get rid of this verse that says you have to be a believer? They just get rid of the verse. Acts 8.37 isn't in those versions I mentioned. And somebody wants to say that we're fighting straw man. That's no straw man. That's a corrupted Bible. right. And it's not just one corrupted Bible. They're all corrupted against the King James Bible. This King James Bible has borne fruit for 400 years of those who have been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jordan, they just get rid of that verse. It's just cut right out of it. After the three changes in 1 Peter 3.21. How does baptism involve the conscience? A person hears the gospel. The gospel is... For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's the gospel. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Romans 1.18. The first one was Romans 3.23. That's the gospel. His conscience is convicted because he's a born again person. A born, no one that's, if a man's not born again, he's not going to even be able to hear the gospel with understanding. He's going to reject the gospel. But a man that's born again, hears that message, knows that it applies to him, knows that he's a sinner, he's convicted and condemned, his conscience agrees with the gospel that he's a sinner, fallen far short of God's glory, and he deserves God's judgment. And so he believes in the Lord Jesus Christ to lay hold of eternal life, because that's what he's told to do. So he has this conscience that's condemning him about his sins as he has the law of God revealed to him, telling him how he should be living. And so he's got a bad conscience. Look at Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, this is the day of Pentecost. Thank you, Nathan, for starting With the 36th verse this morning in the back room when the men prayed before we began our assemblies. Acts 2, 36. Let's read it again. It's such a wonderful verse of declaration by a man who once had been afraid of a servant maid. But now he's preaching to the Jews of Jerusalem. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. That is, they were convicted. They were convinced that they were sinners and guilty and fearful before the Lord in Christ. And said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Here are men convicted. Their consciences are convicted. Their consciences are bad. How does a baptism involve the conscience? The conscience hears the gospel like Peter preached right here and knows they're condemned. What can we do? We have slain the prophesied Messiah of Israel. What can we do? So there's a conscience involved. Look at Acts chapter 19. I turned you a little early from Acts chapter 2, so let me read the next verse to you. Repent. What's the answer of the apostles? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Repent. To repent is to say, I am wrong. That was sinful. I will not do it anymore. I will now live rightly. That's what repentance is. God's word condemns me. I was wrong. I change. I will do what is right. Repent. (laughs) <laughs> that requires a conscience. right? So the conscience is involved in baptism because First Peter 3.21 told us it was. Acts chapter 2 verses 37 and 38 show us that it was because they were pricked in their heart. They were pricked with the goad of the Lord to realize that they were guilty and condemned before Him. And the solution was to repent. And that's the same thing here in Acts chapter 19 verse 4. Then said Paul, John, verily, this is a true statement, baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him, which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. So baptism was of repentance. So to repent means that you have a conscience that is accusing you. So a conscience is involved in baptism. The only people baptized in the New Testament were always believers. Whether it was John the Baptist, when he first started baptizing, he said, Bring forth therefore fruits, meat for repentance. Amen. And the verse that I just read explained John's ministry, that when they repented, they were also to believe on him, which should come after John, that is, on Christ Jesus. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, is what Mark sixteen sixteen tells us. And throughout the whole New Testament, they believed and were baptized. They believed and were baptized. What doth hinder me to be baptized? Believe with all thine heart, and thou mayest. Believe and be baptized. And that is why it's called believer's baptism in most circles of Baptist churches. The conscience is definitely involved in baptism. It's involved in the conviction and the repentance and the believing that leads to baptism. Does a baby have a conscience? No. A child does not have any active conscience at birth. You cannot reason with them or make them feel good or evil, accuse or excuse themselves. They don't have any thought of any of that. They are entirely unmitigated, 100%, absolutely selfish. They have no regard for God or man. They're an infant. Child doesn't have any active conscience. It doesn't even know it's dirtying itself for a couple of years. A child doesn't even know it's naked till it's near five years old, contrary to adults. I want you to remember in the Garden of Eden, as soon as Adam and Eve took a bite of that fruit, what'd they know? They were naked. A sin nature in this world, in our bodies, results in immediate comprehension of nakedness. A child will not start to hide itself until it approaches the age of five years. I don't care if yours was early or later. I'm using a generalization. And if you need help on that word, I'll help you afterwards. Exceptions just prove that I'm right. A general rule is proven by exceptions. That's why they're called exceptions. Exceptions. A child ordinarily left to himself will run around in its diaper, will pull its diaper off, will fiddle with itself, will whatever, because it doesn't have a conscience about nakedness. The Lord sowed fig leaves for Adam and Eve. The Bible tells us that children from the age of zero to five are in a separate category by themselves, which the men reviewed with me on Wednesday night from Leviticus chapter 27, verses 5 and 6. So as we ask the question, does an infant have a conscience? No, they don't. We know that. We watch them. We see that. They don't have a conscience. That shame that Adam and Eve immediately had, they don't get until later. And then from four, five, six, whatever, depending on the the habits in your home, they all of a sudden are very conscious and the door gets slammed, the door gets locked. Don't come in! What in the world happened? They were running through the house naked last week. What happened? Well, this thing is starting to get active. You know, and the world takes it away and they take their clothes off again as they get older. It's disgusting and sick. I hope every girl in here heard me this morning. If she ever wants to be beautiful, I told her how to do it. Yep. Mm-hmm. I prayed for exactly what I told you about when I was 17 years old in the Lord's Center. I wish you could have all met the little girl that the Lord sent me for my wife. She should have been praying as hard that the Lord would send her a prince. I thank God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. Does a baby have a conscience? No. God judged those under 20 years of age in the wilderness outside of Egypt before the land of Canaan Under the age of 20, not to be able to discern between right and wrong. Now, that was a different set of circumstances, but it's there in the Bible, and that's how the Lord worded it. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 1 and verse 39, that under the age of 20, they did not know the difference between right and wrong when it came to the land of Canaan. But these are examples the Bible gives us that infants don't have a conscience, and yet why do so many so-called Christians baptize babies? It's very simple, and I've taught you this so many times, but do you know why I'm repeating myself? Because Peter said as long as he is in this tabernacle, he will not cease to remind you of the things that you're already established in because I never, ever want this church to forget that we are Baptists because the Bible requires us to be Baptists. Where did 95% of Christians, out of 2.1 billion Christians, only 100 million baptized the right way? And most of them are in false doctrine, but 95%. Near 2 billion out of 2.1 billion baptized the wrong way. How did it all get started? They made a false assumption. Baptism saves. As soon as you think baptism is necessary for eternal life, you will start fudging every other doctrine about baptism because you want to get everybody saved, especially your children, especially if you're a mother living in the Middle Ages when every other birth resulted in a stillbirth or a young child dying in infancy. Do you know how you take care of that? Infant baptism. Do you know how a church can grow when they tell women that they have the way to make sure and guarantee that their babies all go to heaven? And preach the doctrine of original sin at the same time? You start inventing all sorts of things. The Catholics, the Lutherans, the Episcopalians, the Methodists, and the Presbyterians, those last four denominations, all which came out of the Church of Rome... They all cover it by baptizing babies. Mm-hmm. Those like the Church of Christ and others and Pentecostals and Charismatics, some of them, that believe that baptism is for the remission of sins, literally and actually, they come up with the age of accountability. So that's how they get their mommy's babies into heaven. Oh, don't worry, Mother. Everything's going to be okay. Little Johnny was only three years old. They automatically go to heaven till they're twelve. Don't give it another thought. You can know that little Johnny's playing with his tricycle in heaven. And so the pastor comforts some woman at a funeral for a three-year-old child that drowned in a swimming pool. You know, that pastor doesn't dare preach the truth from Romans chapter 5, that that little child is held 100% accountable for Adam eating the fruit off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And because he doesn't know how to preach that half of Romans chapter 5, he can't ever fully appreciate the other half of Romans chapter 5, that the second Adam came for us and obeyed for us, and that righteousness is applied to us regardless or without our obedience. Because we're the elect of God. Now, you can't lay any claim to it without your obedience. Just like your sins prove that you're a sinner from Adam, and you're guilty of Adam's sin. Why why do they do it? Because they make the assumption that baptism saves, thus needing to gather in all infants that might die in their infancy, and since we want to get them to heaven, then we baptize them. After they make that first lie, then they have to make a second lie that baptism is necessary as the condition for the covenant of grace, that baptism is a covenantal sign like circumcision was in the Old Testament. They just make that assumption, boom. Circumcision, Old Testament, baptism, New Testament, same thing. Circumcision to eight days old, baptism, get them while they're young. Well, you know, it falls down on several points, but that's a document on our website which I don't have time to cover right now. But they only did little boys in the Old Testament, but they sure like to do little girls in the Catholic, Presbyterian, Lutheran, Episcopalian, and Methodist churches. And nowhere does the Bible ever make that connection between the two. It is not a sign of the covenant. It is a picture of what Jesus Christ did for us, and it is the answer of a good conscience toward God. After they've made those first two lies, they come up with the third one, that every household baptism in the New Testament had a whole nursery full of babies. Can't you see that? When it says that Lydia and her household and the jailer and his household were baptized, well, you know what, you understand that, don't you? This is them talking. The jailer was 35 and Lydia was 35 and they had five children in the nursery. But it says that those households believed. In both cases it says the households believed. Because believers baptism consistent with the rest of the New Testament is also borne out in household baptisms. Because if you read about the household baptism, the household was also believing. Well after they've made those first three lies, then they involve godparents and confirmation for their heresy. Well, since they can read the word conscience, and they can read the word faith, they can see it in the Bible, who's going to be your godparent? And you wonder, where did that come from? Well, in order to match the Bible, let's pull something else from out of the Bible into the Bible to see if we can satisfy the Bible. Since the Bible involves a conscience, we'll have a godparent. Godmother and godfather come, and they'll stand in, and they're going to make an oath before God that they're going to bring that child up in the fear of the Lord to have a... Oh, and so on. Where did all this come from? One assumption, baptism saves. One false assumption, then you're in mess. Then you've got to have a confirmation sacrament. One of the seven sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church. Because after little Johnny was baptized at 8 days or 16 days or 2 months old, he needs confirmation later in life because nobody's confirmed a thing about him. Except that he's a baby. And what do we know about babies? They're guilty of Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden. Why do most so-called Christians baptize babies? Because they make the heretical assumption that baptism saves. How do baby sprinklers ignore the conscience? I've shown you. Get rid of Acts 8.37 by taking it out of the Bible. Corrupt 1 Peter 3.21 in in three ways so it no longer says anything. What is a bad conscience? A bad conscience is what those Pharisees had with Jesus in John chapter 8. A bad conscience is what the Jews had in the day of Pentecost when Peter preached to them. A bad conscience is one that feels the condemning guilt for sins that leaves one hopeless and fearful. I'm afraid of God. I'm afraid to meet God. I don't have hope of eternal life. My conscience is bad. I know I'm a sinner. I know I've come short of the glory of God. I know the wrath of God is righteous against me. That's a bad conscience. That's Isaiah in Isaiah 6. Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. My speech has been bad. My speech is totally unacceptable to this God that I have now seen and am now seeing. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. All of us have filthy, light, profane, foolish, jesting speech, and I'm condemned. That's a bad conscience. That's a conscience telling you you do not match up to God's standard of holiness and you are in serious eternal trouble. Because that is revealed even in creation. He has an eternal power and Godhead. And so we have a bad conscience. Look at Luke chapter three to, to see some others with a bad conscience. Luke chapter three, verse 10, John the Baptist is out preaching. And he says, every tree that bringeth forth not good fruit is is hewn down and cast into the fire. He's talking about the coming judgment of God. That is Luke 3, 9. And now look at verse 10. Look at the response. And the people asked him, saying, what shall we do then? Now, why would they ask that unless they had a bad conscience? They realized that God's wrath was justified on them. So we have three categories of people here asking, what should we do? And you should be asking today, What wilt thou have me to do? Every one of us should be asking that. And the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? That's the same question that was asked in Acts 2, 37. John the Baptist answered and saith unto them, He that hath two coats, let him impart to him that hath none. And he that hath meat, let him do likewise. Then came also publicans to be baptized, and said unto him, Master, what shall we do? And he said unto them, Exact no more than that which is appointed you. They're the tax collectors. And the soldiers likewise demanded of him, saying, And what shall we do? And he said unto them, Do violence to no man, neither accuse any falsely, and be content with your wages. Notice in three categories, these men did not have good consciences. They had bad consciences because they're asking John, the preacher, What can we do to make peace with God? We're in trouble. We're guilty. We're condemned. What can we do? This wrath that you're describing in the preceding context that's going to fall on our nation, we deserve it. What can we do? And that's what they asked Peter on the day of Pentecost. Well, could the law of Moses help them? Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. No, there's no help at Mount Sinai. We sing a wonderful song. Mount Sinai is no hiding place. Oh no. You don't want to go to Mount Sinai and find 718 commandments, none of which you're able to keep. It just condemns you. The law entered into the timeline of the human race and family and into the church of God 4,000 years ago. For what reason? The law entered that the offense or sin might abound. The law is to show us how sinful we are and to shut every mouth, that every mouth may become guilty before God. So the Old Testament just shows us that we're guilty. Hebrews chapter 9, and I'm trusting that you read it thoroughly last night. Jerry did. And I I mean what I'm saying. Thank you. You bless my heart. I'm trusting that many others of you read it very sincerely and carefully as well. Look at what it says in verse 9 after it describes the tabernacle and its furniture of the Old Testament church. It says in, let's get verse 8, the Holy Ghost, this signifying. All that furniture and stuff of that tabernacle showed this picture. That the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest. There was not yet a way to get into the presence of God under the Old Testament. Well, as the first tabernacle was yet standing, that's Moses, which was a figure for the time then present, that is the Old Testament, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. So here's a man under the Old Testament, convicted of his sins, and he brings the offerings and he brings the sacrifices, but he can't find peace for his conscience. He's got a bad conscience and he can't be delivered. Because those things he was doing, verse 10, only stood in meats and drinks and divers washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. They had to keep going through all these sacrifices and washings and stuff because they were never clean. They were never pure. They were never holy. They were never fit for God. And if you had read those first 10 verses, and I believe you have, the high priest is the only one that could go into the presence of God in that little compartment at the end of the tabernacle, and he could only do it once a year, and he could only do it with very select and specified blood on the Day of Atonement. Because it wasn't open yet. The way to God wasn't open. Look at chapter 10. Verse, starting at verse 1. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come. You know, a shadow isn't very detailed. And a shadow is very obscure. When you think about a shadow of a person... Yeah, okay. You know, you can't... What color tie does he have on? You can't see right. in a shadow. It's obscure. It's vague. For the law, having a shadow... Of good things to come. That's what we have. We have the good things to come. It was just a shadow of them. And not the very image. That's all that I'm trying to say. There's no detail. Of the things can never, with those sacrifices which they offered year by year, continually, make the comers thereunto perfect. Remember that perfect from back there in 9-9? Perfect as pertaining to the conscience. They could never have their conscience made good. Their conscience was bad. They knew that the animal sacrifices and these divers' washings and meats and drinks were not making them pure in the sight of God. Verse 2, For then, if they had made them perfect, if these sacrifices were sufficient, then would they not have ceased to be offered? If they got you holy, you would have stopped doing it, because you would have been holy. Because that the worshippers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. It never took away their sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. That is a bad conscience. Now we have both testaments telling us that the Old Testament could only leave you with a bad conscience. And when the gospel first comes and tells you that you're a condemned sinner, it leaves you with a bad conscience. But there is an answer, and it's the good part of the gospel. It's the good news about Jesus Christ. Right. A good conscience is one that believes the good news of the gospel that Jesus paid for all its sins. If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. Oh, we want to hear the answer to this. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. A man that believes Jesus Christ is the Son of God with a sincere and honest heart, rejoicing in the matter, and goes on his way to live for the Lord... Having found this preacher by reading the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, we know that that man is a child of God by the evidence that he's showing in his life. Reprobates and false professors cannot and will not do those things as measured by a spiritually minded man. It'll always be false, it'll be empty, and it won't result in a changed life. A good conscience is had by hearing the full gospel of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. What was, the, what was the gospel pictured like in Isaiah 6? An angel went with a pair of tongs and took a live coal from off the altar before God and came over and pressed it on the lips of Isaiah and said, This hath touched thy lips, thy sins are purged, and thy iniquity is taken away. What a picture. Do you know what Isaiah felt like then? This is one of the holy angels in the presence of God coming over to him in the sight of God and saying, God doesn't know anything about your bad speech. It's all purged away. All right. I don't know how to tell you, except in words like this, that iniquity is purged. Thy sin is taken away. No angel is coming to us with tongs and a live coal. The Lord Jesus Christ went into heaven into the presence of God to appear for us and offered his own blood as a perpetual, final, complete, total sacrifice for all of our sins. And God was satisfied. You can't sin. You can't bring up sin. It doesn't matter if you think about your sins. You can't remember sins and cause him to change one whit in your standing in heaven because their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Washed away by the Lord Jesus Christ. How about those at Pentecost? Did they get a good conscience? Let's go back there and find out very quickly. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. They said, what shall we do? Men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter said, repent and be baptized. Verse 41. Then they that gladly received his word. How did they receive his word? Gladly. Gladly. Jordan, are you glad to be baptized today? Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. Look at the good conscience. It was, what shall we do? Jesus did it for you. Then they gladly received his word and were baptized. And Nathan read to us the rest of this passage this morning. It describes happy souls filled with righteous fruit showing they were God's elect. Right. And I've already told you about the eunuch and the jailer doing the same thing. How do we get a good conscience? 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We preach the gospel simply, plainly, boldly, without fudging any of it. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This is how we get a good conscience. This is what makes the difference among men. The gospel is preached. Most reject it, most hate it, most consider it foolish, most consider it beneath their dignity, most consider it not important enough to change their lives. They despise it and those preaching it. Then there are others that love it. 2 Corinthians 4.1 Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. This is a godly minister. This minister is not dishonest in, in verse 2. He He's not crafty. He doesn't handle the word of God deceitfully, but he makes manifest the truth. He makes it as plain and as simple and puts it out there, commending the truth of the gospel to every man's conscience in the sight of God. He knows that he's going to be held accountable before God, so that's all that matters to him in preaching the gospel. That's how it's done. If a man believes it, it shows that he's a child of God. If a man doesn't believe it, it shows the devil has blinded his mind and kept him as a child of wrath and a child of nature, just as we read about in Ephesians chapter 2. Now let's go back to Hebrews chapter 9 about that good conscience. Hebrews chapter 9, and this time we want the 14th verse. We hear the preaching of the gospel. It tells us that we have come short of the glory of God, that our mouths are shut, that all the world may become guilty before God. But then we're told about the Lord Jesus Christ, who was sent to lay down his life for the sins, all the sins of his elect. In Hebrews chapter 9, tell us in verse 11 that Christ being come and high priest of good things to come, There's the Lord Jesus Christ, not that high priest that went into the tabernacle with the blood of goats and a bullock, a calf. Verse 14, how much more if those Old Testament sacrifices could make the people of God content for a year in order to function in the nation and not be killed physically, it didn't satisfy their consciences, but it purified their flesh so that they could function and not be burned up like Nadab and Abihu. That's what verses 12 and 13 are explaining to you. If there was even any value in those Old Testament sacrifices, how much more? Verse 14, shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? How much more? If anyone under the Old Testament could ever get excited about serving God, how much more should we under the New Testament get excited about serving God since we know about the final and complete satisfaction and sacrifice for our sins? How much more shall the blood of Christ purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Well, what's the first thing we do to serve the living God? We give him the answer of a good conscience in baptism by being buried in a picture of the burial and then being raised in a picture of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Then being buried, our old man, to rise to walk in a new resurrected life. Then, if this body is buried, I believe that there shall be a resurrection of the dead when the Lord Jesus Christ will come and resurrect my body from any cemetery or any place where it may be. These are the things we believe, and these are the things we declare when we baptize. Brethren, look at chapter 10. My favorite passage next to First Peter 3.21. and nine, Chapter 9 of Hebrews is very good as it helps explain this to us. As I hope you can see in verse 9, their conscience could not be made perfect. Verse 14, it's better than perfect. It's purged. But look at 10, verse 19. Time is short, so I can't explain and preach to you all of the first 18 verses. But I read the first four to you in Hebrews chapter 10, that those sacrifices just made a remembrance of sins every year. And so, God said, I don't like animal sacrifices. This is what verses 5 through 18 teach. I don't like animal sacrifices, and I don't like the covenant I made with Israel. So there's going to be a new sacrifice and a new covenant. The new sacrifice is, I'm going to send my son with a body. A body, hast thou prepared me, is what verse 5 tells us. And verse 10 speaks of it. I'm going to read to you verses 10 through 14. By the which will, and this will is God's will, of how He arranged salvation. By the which will, we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. There is no more offering of it. Do you know what that word sanctified means? To make you holy. By the which will, we are made holy through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest... Standeth. These are the Old Testament priests. Every priest standeth daily, ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, the Lord Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, because his work was finished. He said it is finished, and he sat down because it was finished, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Those sanctified ones from verse 10 are perfected forever. In verse 14, this is just fabulous news. This is the gospel. The holy God of heaven, as holy as he is, there is none holy as the Lord. His holiness cannot look upon a sinner. We're all sinners, but it was paid once for all by Jesus Christ. So that we can now read in verse 19, Having, therefore, because of nine And 10, chapters 9 and 10, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the what? The holy place? No, the holiest. That's the holy of holies. We have boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. By a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil. That is to say, his flesh. There was a veil that kept men from God. And that's because of our sinfulness and His holiness. But there's a new way. It wasn't the Old Testament way of animal sacrifices. It's a new way of the Son of God. It's a living way. That Those sacrifices killed animals. What can a dead animal do for you? What can a dead high priest do for you? This high priest lives forever to make intercession for your soul. And he'll save you to the uttermost because he ever liveth to make that intercession. It's a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us. It is a holy, consecrated, acceptable, spiritual, moral, religious, right way straight into the presence of God. It's been consecrated. You can't consecrate it. I can't consecrate it for you. The Pope of Rome can't add to it. It is all by the Lord Jesus Christ. Right there, consecrated for us. And how did he do it? That is to say his flesh is the new and living way. We have a man in Christ... The man Christ Jesus is in heaven. He's the mediator between God and men. And having a high priest over the house of God, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only priest you'll ever need. Let us draw near. Jordan, Shane, everyone in this assembly, and everyone hearing my voice, let us draw near to this great God, this holy God, with a true heart, in full assurance of faith. Believe these things. They're absolutely true. They're absolutely certain. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. How are our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience? How did my bad heart, knowing that I was condemned and guilty, get sprinkled so that it's no longer bad? It's no longer an evil conscience. It no longer thinks of me as being evil. How did that happen? By the sprinkling of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, which chapter 9 described, He went into the presence of God for us. And our bodies washed with pure water. When are our bodies washed with pure water? When we're baptized and we answer God with a good conscience through the waters of baptism, that this is what I believe. Jesus was buried and rose again for my sins. I am burying my old man to rise to walk in a resurrected life as a resurrected wife. And if my body were laid to to rest in a cemetery, it will rise again in the great day of judgment. And so we draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. If there's anyone here that doesn't have full assurance of faith, I ask you why? Is the deficiency on the part of God? Is the deficiency on the part of Christ? Is the deficiency in his blood? Is the deficiency in the written record we have of these things? Where is the deficiency? You say, well, my faith is weak. Then fall before the Lord Jesus Christ and say, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Let's go out of here and live some resurrected lives. I need to turn you to Colossians chapter 3 and we'll end. Colossians chapter 3, we're talking about the conscience of baptism. What does a baptized conscience do? on a Sunday afternoon after they're baptized at 1.37 p.m. in the afternoon. I'll tell you. And I don't have time to read the whole passage, but in the particular case that we have before us today, it is Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 18. And Shane, Colossians 3, 1 through 18 are verses that, Jordan should read later today and later this week. I'm just going to read the first four. If ye then be risen with Christ. Now, Paul was on earth and he was writing to the Colossian church on earth. We're at Colossians chapter 3, the first four verses. I've taught you this many times before. This is nothing new, but I never want you to forget it. If ye then be risen with Christ. Paul was on earth, they were on earth. So, what's he talking about, risen with Christ? They were baptized. And by being baptized, they had risen with Christ in the figurative element of baptism. If ye then be risen with Christ, if you're up, if you've, if you've come up out of the waters with a resurrected life, seek those things which are above. Look for the things in heaven, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead. They were. How do dead men read an epistle? How were they dead? Was Paul writing dead men? How were they dead? They were dead practically by the waters of baptism because they had buried their old self to rise to walk in a new life. If you're dead and your life is hid for, ye are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. Our whole lives are now heavenward. We buried this worldly life in the waters of baptism. Now we're resurrected seeking Christ only. For ye are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life, shall appear. Then shall ye also appear with him in glory, because he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.